Last week, we began our study of Paul's second letter to the church in Thessalonica. It was written to comfort, encourage, reassure, and remind the young Thessalonian believers what Paul had taught them about the end times when he had been with them. For you see, Thessalonica had, in the time between Paul's first letter and second letter, become the first place in the Roman Empire where the government was beginning to persecute Christians. People were losing jobs, possessions, homes. They were being beaten and imprisoned, even killed, martyred, simply for following Jesus. And in the midst of this tribulation, these great trials and troubles, Satan had sent men who were false teachers and false prophets into their church. Someone had even forged a letter from Paul and was passing it around the church. The discouraging and deceiving message from all these messengers of Satan was the same. Guys, you're not just going through tribulation. You are actually in the great tribulation. You're in that future time when God's wrath is poured out on the earth, the time the scripture refers to as the day of the Lord, and it's just gonna get worse and worse and worse and worse. The rapture, if there was one, you've missed it, but there probably wasn't one anyway. And this both troubled and confused the Thessalonian church. That much is obvious from what Paul writes to them in this epistle. I want to suggest to you that the reason they were troubled and confused is also pretty obvious. It's because Paul had told them that they would be taken up to be with the Lord in the event known as the rapture of the church, raptus in the Latin, harpazo in the Greek, before the day of the Lord began. Paul had told them they would be taken to be with the Lord before the great tribulation began. Today we're going to be doing some, some heavy-duty Bible study. We're going to be doing some serious detective work to figure out what Paul is really talking about in the text today. Because if he's talking about what I believe he's talking about, then like the Thessalonians, we too have great hope as we move further and further into the end times. And we will find that if I'm right about what I'm teaching today, this is one of the most explicit texts in the Bible regarding the rapture. So let's jump in. We're gonna jump in at verse one, 2 Thessalonians chapter two, and Paul says, now brethren, concerning, and then would you underline, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Without getting technical here, the language speaks of these two things being one event. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. Two things, the Lord coming and us going to him. This, of course, speaks of the rapture, which Paul described this same way back in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 through 17. Jesus himself described it this same way in John 14 when he said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, again, we see that idea, Jesus coming, Jesus descending, and us going to him. At the rapture, Jesus descends, and the church ascends to meet him in a heavenly dimension that Paul calls the clouds in 1 Thessalonians 4. So write this down. Right at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul wants to talk about the rapture. He tells us, that's what I want to talk about, guys. Paul wants to talk about the rapture. So he says, regarding the rapture, we ask you 
not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So let's just work through what Paul says here. He says he doesn't want them to be troubled or to think that what they previously thought they understood was incorrect. He says, I don't want you to be shaken in mind. In other words, I don't want you to think you misunderstood. You didn't, you understood correctly. And then he says, don't be troubled in your thinking or or disturbed or thinking you've misunderstood something. Even if someone shows up teaching something to the contrary, he says, by word. Even if someone shows up prophesying to the contrary, he says, by spirit. So a person stands up in the church and says, I have a word from the Lord. The day of the Lord is upon us. The tribulation has begun. Paul says, don't even listen to that. And then he says specifically, or if someone's passing around a letter, this is where our understanding comes from the fact that there was this forged letter being passed around allegedly from Paul teaching that the day of the Lord was already there. And what exactly is this teaching that Paul says is contrary to what he had taught them? What is this teaching that he says, don't worry if someone shows up teaching, prophesying, or passing around a fake letter that teaches something different, just ignore it? What is this teaching? Paul tells them the lie is that the quote, day of Christ has come. He says this is the lie that's being passed around, that the day of Christ has come. And that term's actually a mistranslation. If it's in your Bible as the day of Christ, it should be the day of the Lord. In the original Greek, it's the same term that's translated day of the Lord everywhere else it appears in the scriptures. So Paul's saying, listen, if someone shows up, teaching, prophesying, passing around a letter allegedly from me, saying that we're in the day of the Lord, don't believe it, don't believe it. So would you write this down? The lie being spread through the Thessalonian church was that there was no rapture and they were in the day of the Lord. They were in the day of the Lord. I don't think I've stretched the the text here at all in our understanding. I don't know how you could not come to that conclusion if you just read verses one and two that Paul is saying, don't be disturbed no matter what you hear if someone says we're in the day of the Lord, you're not. It's very plain when you break it down. They had lost their hope and Paul is writing to restore their hope by reassuring them that what he taught them when he was with them was correct. Their understanding of the order of end times events was correct. And as you'll notice as we read through this letter, I just want you to pick up on this, just tuck it away in the back of your minds. Paul's response to them to reassure them is not going to be, listen guys, don't worry, We are in the day of the Lord, but after the first three and a half years of really, really bad stuff happening, you're going to go be with the Lord. He's not going to say that anywhere in here. He's also not going to say, guys, you are in the day of the Lord. You're going to go through the great tribulation, but hey, take heart. At the end of it, you'll be with the Lord if you haven't died already. He's not going to say that anywhere in here. If you pay attention here in chapter 2, you'll notice that Paul will not comfort or correct the Thessalonians with what's known as mid-tribulation or post-tribulation theology. He's not going to try and reassure them by telling them they'll be taken mid-trib, which is halfway through the tribulation, or post-trib, which is at the end or after the tribulation. If you pay attention to the text and ask the question, why are the Thessalonian believers upset? It'll be pretty obvious that it's because they felt their eschatological expectations, their end times expectations were not being met. And then you need to ask the logical question, well, what were 
their eschatological expectations that had been given to them by Paul's teachings. What were their expectations? Because if they were expecting to be raptured halfway through the seven years or after the great tribulation, then, then, then they wouldn't be worried or confused. I mean, tribulation is bad, but Paul, if he had told them mid-trib or post-trib eschatology, would simply be telling them, guys, remember what I told you. You're going to have to go through the first half. Or remember what I told you. You're going to have to go through the great tribulation. Then the Lord comes. But Paul would have no need to write to them concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him if he had told them to expect a mid-trib or post-trib rapture. Clearly, the Thessalonian church was disturbed because they were not expecting to be around for the day of the Lord. And if you want to hold to a mid-trib or a post-trib eschatology, then you have to explain why they're so upset that people are saying they're in the day of the Lord. You have to explain that if you want to be mid-trib or post-trib. So write this down. Based on Paul's teachings, the Thessalonians had an expectation of a pre-tribulation rapture. They expected a pre-tribulation rapture, that they would be taken before any type of tribulation, before the day of the Lord. Getting even more blunt in verse 3, Paul says, let no one, and then underline, deceive you. Let no one deceive you by any means. He says, if anyone tells you different to what I have told you, they're deceived and they're knowingly or unknowingly trying to deceive you. It doesn't matter what their presentation is. Do not be deceived. He doesn't say, listen though, if you want to be mid-trib or post-trib though, that's your preference. He says, do not be deceived. He goes on and he says, for that day, uppercase D, because it's the day of the Lord, the pouring out of God's wrath and judgment of the earth, that day will not come unless, so here's the setup. Paul's saying, before the day of the Lord can begin, before God begins pouring out his wrath and judging the earth, here's what must take place first. And now Paul is going to list two major unmissable world events that will take place before the day of the Lord can begin. In other words, the things that Paul is about to describe are prerequisite to the day of the Lord beginning. I should have your attention if you're not with me yet. He says, number one, underline it, the falling away comes first. The falling away comes first. Now we're going to get into our heavy-duty Bible study if we weren't there already. I put this all on your outline. You can follow along if you'd like. The original Greek word that's used there for the phrase falling away is apostasia. Apostasia. It's a compound Greek word. That means it's two words that come together to form a new word. The Greek word apo, which means away from, and the second word is histemi which means to stand. So you put them together, and apostasia literally means to stand away from or to depart. Apostasia is not, in the Greek, what they call a technical word. That means it doesn't always mean the same thing. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that as I share a couple of definitions of this word from two very well-known Greek lexicons, and you'll find that the definition is pretty different in the way that you read it. Liddell and Scott, which is a very well-known Greek lexicon, defines apostasia as rebellion against God, apostasy, departure, disappearance, or distance. 
Another well-known Greek lexicon defines apostasia as revolt, defection, apostasy from orthodoxy, divorce, departure, or standing aloof. And so perhaps you can begin to see the issue that's beginning to emerge because there's two ways that scholars choose to interpret this verse. Firstly, they choose to define it as referring to a spiritual departure. The word for this is apostasy, which comes from the word apostasia. Apostasy means to abandon a religious belief or to abandon an orthodox main core belief of some type. In the context of Christianity, Apostasy is abandoning the core teachings of the faith that are outlined in the Bible. If you abandon an orthodox Christian belief, you are apostate. If you say, no, Jesus isn't the only way to heaven, that's apostasy because you're abandoning the core orthodox Christian belief that Jesus is the only way to be saved. So firstly, some scholars would translate this as a spiritual departure when it talks about the falling away. The other way that you can tell from the definitions that it's been translated though, is as referring to a physical departure. Now hang with me here, apostasia is a noun that's only used one other time in the New Testament, it's in the book of Acts, but it's used there to refer to a spiritual departure. But because it's not a technical word, because it can be used to mean more than one thing, having it show up only one other place in the New Testament doesn't give us enough usage to establish a rule. We can't say because it's used this way there by a different author, Paul means it that way when he uses it here. It's not enough of an example. However, the verb form of apostasia is the Greek word aphistimi, and it shows up 15 times in the New Testament. Three of those times it's used to refer to a spiritual departure, but 12 times it's used to refer to a physical departure. Paul says that this falling away, quote, comes first. The original Greek meaning there is first of all. So not only does this falling away have to take place before the day of the Lord can begin, it's also going to be the first domino that must fall in the series of end times events. This falling away is going to kick everything off in the end times. So either Paul is saying that the major end times timeline will begin with apostasy in the church, a spiritual departure from biblical theology, seemingly to a shocking degree never before seen in history, or Paul is referring to a physical departure, which would be which event? The rapture of the church, the rapture of the church. So which is it? Let me first say that I do believe there will be rampant apostasy in the church in the last days. Let me rephrase that. There is rampant apostasy in the church in the last days. That idea fits with much that is said in scripture. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. Such as 2 Timothy 2 where Paul writes, for the time will come when people will not tolerate healthy doctrine, but with itching ears will surround themselves with teachers who cater to their people's own desires. They will refuse to listen to the truth and will turn to myths. You can also go and read what Jesus has to say about the last day's church in his letter to the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3. Spoiler alert, it's not good, it's not good. And if you look at many modern churches in the Western world today, they are indeed abandoning many orthodox Christian beliefs around subjects and issues like sexuality, marriage, gender, heaven and hell, the seriousness of sin, etc. 
But while there will be and is rampant apostasy in the church in the last days, I'm personally not convinced that's what Paul is talking about here. We have to really get into the context to figure out what he's talking about. So I'm gonna teach what I believe the scripture points to, and I'm gonna share with you why I came to that conclusion. You don't have to agree with me. As always, I, I urge you not to believe a word I say, but rather check things out for yourself in the word and come to your own conclusions based on the scriptures and you can decide if you want to hold the correct belief with me or come up with your own version as well. It's perfectly entitled. I'll, I'll definitely be cutting that from the recording later. Point number one, here's why. Here's what we have. Firstly, I would just say, you can write this down, there has always been apostasy in the church. There's always been apostasy in the church. If you were with us when we studied through Revelation 2 and 3 and we studied all these different phases of the church age over the last 2,000 years, you know there's always been apostasy in the church. Just read the epistles in the New Testament that are written to churches. They're a mess. There's rampant apostasy in the first century church within decades, within years of the church being born in Acts chapter 2. For almost a thousand years of the last 2,000 years, the Roman Catholic Church was pretty much the only church on the earth. They taught people to pray to Mary and dead saints. They taught people to buy indulgences. They fabricated entire core doctrines like purgatory of which the Bible says nothing. They did all they could to stop people reading the Bible. They burned men at the stake for trying to translate the Bible into common languages. The papacy was flat out sold multiple times, sometimes to boys under the age of 10. They gave the Pope the ability to speak ex cathedra on par with Scripture. So if we're objective, I think we can make a pretty good argument and case for apostasy in the church actually being worse at some points in history than it is today. My point is simply that apostasy has been happening throughout the church age. So it can't be something where in the last days we're going to suddenly go, oh, the rapture's about to happen because there's apostasy in the church. There's always been apostasy. It's not that unique of an occurrence. Secondly, we're going to nerd out. I'll keep it really short here. We're going to nerd out on grammar. There is a definite article in the Greek before the phrase falling away. In the English, the definite article is the word the. Just as there is the same definite article before the phrase man of sin in that same verse. It means that both of them are talking about specific things, not apostasia, but the apostasy. Same thing as it talks about the man of sin. The man of sin is a reference to the Antichrist. He's going to be a specific person at a specific time in future history. Likewise, this apostasia, this falling away, will be a specific event at a specific time. It's not talking about general apostasy. It's talking about a specific apostasia. And as we said, apostasy has been at work in the church for the last 2,000 years. Third reason, write this down. The rest of scripture teaches a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. The rest of scripture teaches a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. We're not gonna rehash this topic because somehow I already managed to do three full messages on the rapture when we were in 1 Thessalonians. So if you wanna know all the details, go check out those messages on the website. But again, 
Just one example of this would be the book of Revelation. Flows chronologically. We have the whole church age from Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 in 33 AD all the way up to today laid out in perfect chronological order in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. Chapter 4 begins with John the Apostle being raptured up to heaven. Chapters 4 and 5 John records for us the church in heaven. Then after that, in chapters 6 through 19, the day of the Lord unfolds and is detailed, including the great tribulation. In every culture throughout history, four and five have come before six, and so it is today. The book of Revelation details the church going up before wrath comes down. So the rest of scripture teaches a pre-tribulation rapture, which would make sense in this context here. Fourthly, the rapture, not apostasy, is in view in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So in other words, Paul doesn't spend real time talking about apostasy in his letters to the Thessalonians, but he does spend significant time talking about the rapture. In his first letter, he says, I'm reminding you of what I spoke to you about when I was with you, including the doctrine of the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, is one of the key sections of scripture on the rapture in the whole Bible. And how did Paul begin this very chapter of his second epistle? Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with him, speaking about this. So he's already said, this is what we're talking about. I need to talk to you about the rapture of the church. So you decide which one makes more sense in the context that Paul is talking about the thing that he just said he wants to talk about or that he switched gears and for the first time is speaking about a different subject. Fifth reason, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 strongly implies the Thessalonian believers were troubled because they did not expect to go through the day of the Lord. We talked about this earlier. The text clearly points to the Thessalonians having an expectation of a pre-tribulation rapture based upon the teaching they received from Paul when he was with them. Everyone would agree that based on the text, Paul expected his letters and clarifications to be a comfort to the Thessalonians. Nobody should be confused about that. Now think with me. Is it any type of comfort if Paul is saying, guys, I know things seem really bad right now. I know that you're troubled, shaken in mind and spirit because you think you're in the day of the Lord, but I want to remind you there's still a great apostasy coming for you guys to look forward to. So hang in there. There's more stuff that has to happen. Or is it a comfort if Paul is saying, guys, remember what I told you. The rapture of the church must take place before the day of the Lord can begin. You're going to be out of here with Jesus when the great tribulation takes place. So no, you're not in the day of the Lord. Which one makes more sense with Paul writing to comfort them? Sixth reason, write this down. Early Bible translations favor a physical departure. This one is pretty fascinating. Early Bible translations favor a physical departure. In the fourth century, a man named Jerome translated the Bible from Greek into Latin, creating one of the most famous and important Bible translations in history, the Latin Vulgate. Jerome translated the word apostasia as departure or departing as did many of the other most famous Bible translations in history, including the Wycliffe Bible in 1384 and the Tyndale Bible in 1526. So how did it get changed 
to falling away or apostasy in our modern Bibles? Well, the theologian Thomas Ice writes this. He says, most scholars say, and here's the reality, that no one knows the reason for the translation shift. Some people speculate that maybe it was because there began to be a bias where Bible scholars and translators stopped believing in a literal interpretation of end times events and so they began to find ways to allegorize it and they said we got to get rid of this word. It could be that. Thomas Ice says though, however, a plausible theory has been put forth by Martin Butella in his Master of Theology thesis produced at Dallas Theology Seminary, DTS, in 1998. It appears that the Catholic translation into English from Jerome's Latin Vulgate known as the Reims Bible, which was published in 1576, was the first to break the translation trend. Apostasia was revised from the departure to the Protestant revolt, explains Butella. Revolution is the terminology still in use today when Catholicism teaches the history of the Protestant Reformation. Under this guise, apostasia would refer to a departure of Protestants from the Catholic Church. The Catholic translators appear eager to engage in polemics against the Reformation by even allowing it to impact Bible translation. In other words, here's what happens. 1576, the Catholic Church finally translates the Bible from Latin into English in this translation known as the Reims Bible. 1576 is smack dab in the middle of the Protestant Reformation where there are literal wars happening between the Roman Catholic Church and the politicians they control across Europe and Protestants who are beginning to read and translate the Bible and discover all the things in scripture that the Catholic Church is doing that are heretical and blasphemous and they're starting to revolt against the Catholic Church. So in this Bible translation, it seems as though what happens is the Catholic translators change this word instead of saying the departure, they actually changed it to the Protestant revolt so that they could begin teaching in the last days there will be a Protestant revolt. In other words, trying to make it seem like the Bible prophesied that these wicked Protestants would revolt against the rulership of the Pope and the Catholic Church. Well, a few decades later, in 1611, the King James Bible is published. And if you know the history of this, the whole reason this gets published is because King James has some major issues with the Catholic Church and wants them out of his business. That's sort of the dirty secret behind the King James Bible translation. This was not a man who said, because I loveth the Lord so much, I'm going to write the dopest Bible translation in history. That's not at all what happened. It was very, very, very political. Someone's gonna write me a letter who's gonna listen online who has a King James Bible. Don't write it to me, let the Lord work on your heart, okay? So when they do that in 1611, a few decades later, they translated apostasia. They're not gonna go with the Protestant uh, revolt, obviously. They translated as falling away, allegedly so that they could apply it to the Catholic Church in response and say, no, listen, it's the falling away from truth that is now being revealed in the Catholic Church. That's what this is talking about. You're the apostate. However, anyone reading the Bible before these two translations, before 1576, would have almost certainly been exposed to the view that apostasia referred to a physical departure. In other words, if you read 2 Thessalonians, for 75% of the church age, you would have read it as the departure or departing. It's incredible. 
Point number seven, the restrainer of verses six through seven. I know we're not there yet. We're gonna come back to that one in just a few minutes, but we're gonna explain why the identity of the restrainer in verses six through seven supports a physical departure view of apostasia. So I just wanna make sure you're tracking with me why this is so important, because if indeed it is correctly to be translated as before the day of the Lord can begin, the departure must first take place, and it's speaking of a physical departure, that you have a verse literally where Paul is telling other believers the day of the Lord, the judgment of God, cannot begin until the church departs, until the church physically leaves the earth, which is an explicit teaching of a pre-tribulation rapture. And I put a little note on your outlines there. I'd really recommend a little ebook. I'm indebted to Bill for bringing my attention to it. You can buy it on Amazon for like $3 called The Falling Away by Dr. Andy Woods. And it's just 10 reasons why apostasia should be translated as the departing and why it refers to a rapture. It goes into more detail than we can today, but it's a great little study to do on your own. So let's get back to the text. Now Paul says the second thing that must take place before the day of the Lord can begin. He says, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Paul says, here's how you know you're not in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord cannot begin till the church has been raptured, physically departed the earth, and until the Antichrist has been revealed. This charismatic, charming, loved by everyone, miracle-working, peace-deal-brokering guy that we know as the Antichrist will be revealed and rise dramatically onto the world political stage before the day of the Lord begins. So write this down. Before the day of the Lord can begin, the church must be raptured and the Antichrist must be revealed. The Antichrist must be revealed. The only other time that the Bible calls someone the son of perdition only one other time, is when Jesus uses the term to refer to Judas Iscariot in his great high priestly prayer in John 17. At the Last Supper, the Bible tells us that Satan entered Judas. Satan himself, not one of his sub-demons, Satan himself possessed Judas. And so when we see that term, son of perdition, used here to refer to the Antichrist, the point is that like Judas Iscariot, Satan himself is going to possess the Antichrist, that man. The word perdition just means waste, as in laid to waste, complete desolation. That's what happened to Judas. That's what will happen to the Antichrist. In a few verses, we're going to discover that we don't need to be on the lookout for the Antichrist. No need to play that favorite game of the 80s in churches, guess the Antichrist. We don't need to do that because we'll already be gone in the rapture before he rises on the world stage. In fact, we're going to discover that the rapture has to take place before Antichrist can be revealed. And I think it's really telling though, from an eschatological viewpoint, it's telling to me that over and over and over again in the New Testament scriptures, we are exhorted and encouraged to be watching and looking for the coming of the Lord, over and over and over again. But we are never told to be watching for the coming of the Antichrist with expectation. We're never told, be on the lookout, be on your guard, be aware. Why would that be? It's because 
we won't be here because the coming of the Lord is for us. Well, then you might say, well, well, why is it in the Bible then, Jeff? Well, firstly, because we know from Scripture that God loves to share his future plans with his people. Just like a loving spouse would share their future dreams and plans with their own spouse, God loves to share his future plans with his people. It's a display of affection on his part. But secondly, because after the rapture takes place, for hundreds of millions of people, I believe, the Bible will be the most desired book on the planet as they frantically scramble because they remember what they heard a friend say. They remember a radio broadcast, a church service someone dragged them to one time where they heard of this concept of the rapture and they're gonna run to the Bible to try and find answers for why hundreds of millions of people have suddenly vanished off the face of the earth. The Holy Spirit's gonna remind them of that and they're gonna go looking for answers and when they do, they're going to need to know that Antichrist is coming that he's about to emerge so that they can make sure that they follow the Lord and not the eternally damning consequences of following the Antichrist. What is the Antichrist most notably going to do? Verse four, Paul says, who opposes and exalts himself above all, would you underline all that is called God or that is worshiped, so that he sits as God, underline in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The day is rapidly approaching when the rapture of the church will take place. Shortly after that, potentially a few months, potentially a few years, a seven-year time period will begin. The Bible refers to the seven-year time period as the 70th week of Daniel. Listen to our previous messages if you don't know what I'm talking about. By the halfway point of those seven years, three and a half years in, the Antichrist will have risen so high in power and influence that he will march into the holy of holies of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, sit down on a throne and declare himself to be God and demand to be worshiped. This event is spoken of by the prophet Daniel in Daniel 9 of the Old Testament and Jesus himself refers to it in the Olivet Discourse, that teaching that he gives in the Gospels on the end times, and it's mentioned in other places in Scripture. It's an event known as the Abomination of Desolation. And I put some verse references on your outline so that you can go and listen to the corresponding messages on our website if you'd like to learn more about that. It's known as the Abomination of Desolation, this event where Antichrist goes into the temple and declares himself to be God. And I want to draw your attention to two small but critical details that Paul gives us about this event in verse 4 that you might have missed. Firstly, Antichrist isn't going to only exalt himself above the Christian and Jewish God. It says that he exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. That means Jesus, that means Allah, that means Yahweh, that means the supreme Brahman of Hinduism, That means everything. And yet, as you read Bible prophecy, it seems that primarily the only people who will resist Antichrist claims to be God in the Great Tribulation will be Jews and Christians. So so what about all the other religions? Well, it seems to be implied that they will accept him as God. In fact, we even find the penalty for refusing to worship Antichrist or taking his mark 
as being beheading, which is the form of capital punishment in which world religion? Islam. Which is why many scholars say what seems to be taking place is that all these other religions accept Antichrist as God. Now why in the world would they do that? This is a cliffhanger because we're gonna talk about it when we get to verses 10 and 12, which we're not gonna to get to this week. But you can look into that your own this, this week, read it, read ahead, see what the Lord shows you, and you're gonna get that answer. Why would these militant Muslims accept Antichrist as God? The answer's in verses 10 through 12, which you're all reading now instead of paying attention to the message. Okay, so I would be doing the same thing. Where will... The second thing I wanted to point out to you here in this verse is, is where will the Antichrist declare himself to be God? Where does it say that's going to happen? In the temple of God. If you investigate the original language, there can be no confusion. This is a specific reference to the temple of God. The temple to Yahweh in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. Uh, small detail, Jeff. You may have overlooked it in your studies. Hate to tell you this, uh, but there is no temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Meaning Paul is telling us what? There will be. There will be. By the time we reach the halfway point of the seven years, the Jewish temple has been rebuilt. In fact, many scholars believe that the peace treaty that the Bible speaks of Antichrist brokering will be between the Arabs and the Jews and one of the conditions will be the rebuilding of the Jewish temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Can you imagine, just think about this, if someone could pave the way for that to happen, how the Jews would view that as a messianic type accomplishment? If there was ever something that someone could do which would make them essentially believe this guy might be the Messiah, it would be doing the impossible, rebuilding the temple on the Temple Mount that they've longed to see for almost 2,000 years since Solomon's temple, the second temple, was destroyed back in 70 AD. But Jeff, that's all well and good, but there's a little thing on the Temple Mount called the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the alleged third most holy site in Islam. And, and last time I checked, the billion plus Muslims surrounding the state of Israel in the Middle East didn't seem too eager to get on board with any program that results in the demolition of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But you know what's the most interesting thing? If you look at the Temple Mount, if you've ever seen newscasts or pictures, Al-Aqsa is, is over on one side. The rest of the Temple Mount is just this flat, giant stone courtyard with, with practically nothing on it. The original Jewish temple took up all of the space on the Temple Mount because most of that space would have been the outer courtyard or the courtyard of the Gentiles, this wide place where non-Jews could go. It was as close as they could get to the temple. It took up the whole of the Temple Mount. But in Revelation 11, John the Apostle is being shown by an angel this future rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, this temple that will be there during the great tribulation. And he's told by the angel to measure it. If you studied Revelation, you might recall this. But do you remember what else the angel says to John is in his instructions? I'll read it to you. He says, when you're measuring it, 
leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles. The angel told John that the rebuilt temple would not have this massive outer court that it had in the days of Jesus, in the days of the second temple, Solomon's temple. That means that this rebuilt temple will require a whole lot less real estate than the previous temples did. This is just one reason why some scholars suggest that Antichrist will broker an agreement which will allow a Jewish temple to be rebuilt on the Temple Mount without encroaching on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. So write this down. Here's the big point though. Verse four presumes the existence of a literal Jewish temple in Jerusalem at the time of the Antichrist. It presumes that. Verse five, Paul goes on and he says, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And again, this, this cracks me up. I've said this a few times, but Paul was with them for only about three weeks in Thessalonica before he has to flee the city. They were all new believers. And here Paul says, uh, listen, remember what we talked about when I was with you? So when Paul was with them, he said, uh, what do these guys need to know about? They're brand new Christians. Oh yeah, let's talk about the rapture, the antichrist, the day of the Lord, and the great tribulation. Basic stuff, let's do that. And in the overwhelming majority of Western churches, you know, most pastors believe that even seasoned Christians don't need to concern themselves with such things. We're going with Paul's approach if you haven't figured that out yet. I don't know if it's any way to grow a church, but I think Jesus is pleased with it. So we're going to keep rolling with that. Verse 6, he says, and now you know what is restraining. Underline what is restraining. That he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work only, and then underline the rest of verse seven, he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. So now we gotta do a little detective work in verses six and seven to figure out what's being talked about. So first in verse six, we notice that there is a what restraining. Do you see that? There is a what that is restraining. And this what is preventing Antichrist from being revealed, from rising to power on the world stage. Then in verse seven, we're told that Satan's plans for Antichrist are already at work. He's ready to go. He just can't implement his plans right now. He can't thrust Antichrist to prominence on the world political stage because there's this what in verse six restraining his plans, stopping Satan from implementing his plans. Are you tracking with me so far? Okay, good, good. Then verse seven tells us that not only is there a what that is restraining, but there is also a he that is restraining, a person. But there's a coming time when this person, this he, will be, quote, taken out of the way, meaning that Satan will no longer be restrained on the earth and he will be able to implement his plans for the Antichrist. What is the what of verse six? And who is the he of verse seven that are restraining together Satan's plans for Antichrist on the earth? For the sake of brevity, I'm just gonna get right to the point. If you examine all the issues in all of scripture, you can really only draw one conclusion that fits with everything else, including this verse. The what is the church and the he is the Holy Spirit. So write this down. The restrainer of verses six and seven 
is the Holy Spirit indwelling the church. It's the Holy Spirit indwelling the church. We don't realize this sometimes, but it's only in the church age, beginning at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, that the Holy Spirit began indwelling every believer. In other words, it's only in the church age that the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in every believer upon salvation. Everywhere there's a believer, the presence of God is there. The Holy Spirit is there. Wherever a believer is geographically located on the earth right now, the presence of God is there because he is in them. And apparently the presence of the church, the presence of the Holy Spirit across the earth in hundreds of millions of people has the spiritual effect of limiting, somehow restraining Satan's power on the earth to such a degree that there are some things Satan wants to do that he can't do as long as the church is here, including elevating this one supreme evil leader to rule the whole world, possibly, or a revived Roman Empire. It has to wait until the church is removed which is what verse seven says is going to ultimately happen. When would the church be removed from the earth? In the rapture, in the rapture. Do you see how this all fits together with what Paul said in verse one that he wants to talk about the rapture, why apostasia would seem to be referring to the rapture of the church, it's all connected. Paul's telling the Thessalonians, here's how you know you're not in the day of the Lord. The church hasn't been raptured, and Antichrist hasn't been revealed. And in case you guys are confused, remember, Antichrist can't be revealed until the church, the restrainer, has been removed. Okay, Jeff, but, but if the Holy Spirit has departed from the earth in the rapture, then how are people gonna get saved after the rapture? While the church will leave the earth in the rapture, The Holy Spirit will continue to move upon the earth, but in a different way. At the rapture, the church age will end. Those who become believers after the rapture, after the church age, are called tribulation saints in eschatological vocabulary. They are a different class of people. They have a different reward. They have a different place in heaven. The church is what you want to be a part of, but even in the book of Revelation, they're in a different class, so to speak, in heaven. The church age began at Pentecost in Acts 2, and it will end at the rapture. The time period when the Holy Spirit indwells believers will end when the church is removed from the earth. It did not happen in the Old Testament that the Holy Spirit indwelled people. You can read the Old Testament, and you'll find the Holy Spirit coming upon people for certain times and certain seasons and certain tasks coming upon the prophets, coming upon David, coming upon Saul, coming upon Moses. But you will not find the Holy Spirit indwelling those who believe in the Lord from the moment they put their faith in the Lord. It doesn't happen in the Old Testament. We have no idea, no idea how blessed we are to be living in the church age when we have the Holy Spirit with us, in us, all the time. We have no idea how blessed we are that we can just stop and pray and literally sense the presence of God should we choose to do so at any point throughout the day. It's an incredible privilege. After the rapture, it seems from scripture 
that the Holy Spirit will go back to operating as he did prior to the church age, before Acts chapter two, the way he did in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit will still draw people to Jesus. How do we know that? Because the Bible says that no man can come to God unless God draws him. He'll still draw people to Jesus, but he will not indwell them. He will not indwell them. That's going to be over. Let me say this in closing. We'll, we'll pick it up next week and keep going with this. While the Antichrist is a specific person who will rise on the world political stage in the future, the Bible also teaches in places like First and Second John that there is an Antichrist spirit at work in the world that's been at work in the world since the world began essentially, since the fall. And this antichrist spirit is often even at work in us. While the word antichrist is often understood to mean against Christ, it really means more literally in place of Christ. Antichrist is anything that takes the place that should belong to Jesus. The antichrist, the antichrist, is going to enter the temple, sit on the throne, and declare himself to be God. Paul told the Corinthian believers, you are the temple of God because the spirit of God dwells in you. And what the Antichrist spirit constantly tries to do is to tempt us to sit on the throne of our life in our temple and take the place and the position that should belong to Jesus. And that's what we do every time we choose our will over the Lord's will. Every time we say, Lord, I know what you want me to do, but I'm going to do this instead. I'm gonna do what I wanna do. Every time we, we take control or hold on to something that we know we should be giving away to the Lord's control, a desire, a burden, a, a stress, a dream, a, a problem, we take over the throne of our lives when we do that. And when we do, when we take the place that should belong to Jesus, there's only ever one result, great tribulation. There's violence, there's wars and rumors of wars, there's chaos, there's death and destruction. Might be a little over dramatic, but you get the idea. It's not good, not good when we take over the place that belongs to Jesus. It brings trouble and it brings strife. It brings tribulation into our life when we say, no, nah, Jesus, I want to sit on that throne. So as we pray in just a minute, as we prepare to worship Jesus, would you just ask him to show you if you've done that, if there's any area of your life where you're taking control in a way that, that only he should. And it might not even be, be to sin. It might be a problem that you're trying to fix or work on behind the scenes to engineer that the Lord is saying, no, you need to leave that with me. You need to leave that with me. You need to get off the throne of your life, get out of the driver's seat, and let me do it. And if the Lord shows you something, then repent, but put it back in his hands. Give it back to him. Say, I don't want to be on the throne. I don't want to be at the wheel here, Lord. I need you there. And then go and receive communion in the back and remember that the hands that you're placing your life in, the hands that you're placing that concern or that issue in, the hands you're putting your life in bear the marks of the cross where he laid down his life for you. 
proved his love for you with his blood and his body and his life. You can put your life into those hands with confidence because you can trust that he loves you and that he cares about you. With that, would you bow your head and close your eyes and let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the the confidence that it gives us that there is a plan and it's good. And Father, I thank you that your plan is for us to be with you. And we know that we're going to have tribulation and trials and and persecution in life, Lord. We're, We're ready to die for you if that's what needs to happen, Lord. But Father, I thank you that we are not appointed for your wrath, but to obtain salvation through your son, Jesus. We don't need to fear that. We know where we stand with you. We don't have to spend any time wondering, is God mad at me? Is he storing up wrath for me? But because Jesus took our place, we know where we stand with you. We are spotless and blameless because we are robed in the righteousness of your son, Jesus. Not of any of our own works, but of the perfect life and righteousness of Jesus, Lord. It's nothing that we could do. We could only receive it and say thank you. So knowing that you've done that for us, Lord, we gladly, gladly vacate the throne of our life and say, Jesus, would you rule and reign every area of my life, every concern in my mind, every worry, every burden. Jesus, would you rule over every desire? Would you rule over every temptation? All of me. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just now begin to draw our minds to anything where we may have taken a level of control that should only belong to you. Bring it to our mind, Lord, that we might repent and turn it over to you, that you might be fully and completely the king of our lives, Jesus. We want you to rule, Lord. We want you to reign, Father. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.